what's up, Crypt Nation? Bryce Paul and the Notorious Pizza Mind coming at you per usual from the sunny and 70 San Diego. All right, so if you haven't heard yet, Pete's and I just finished writing a 290-page book called Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. And we did this so that anyone anywhere in the world can learn about really how cryptocurrency and blockchain technology are putting the power back in the hands of the people. And really, we wrote this to equip the masses with the tools to profit from this revolution. So whether you invest in crypto or something else, the point is that you need to escape inflation, which is a hidden tax on your savings by investing in your future. And we think that crypto is really the hottest market, which has the most upside potential. And we are so confident that Crypto Revolution is the perfect starting point, whether you're the crypto curious or the seasoned investor just looking to learn about the world's newest asset class. All right. The best part is we're giving it away literally for free. Okay? For free. All we ask is you pay for shipping uh, just to help offset the cost of the book. We're literally making zero dollars on this and are just doing it to give back to our amazing community of listeners. All right. So go to CryptoRevolution.com today and get your free copy. All right. What is up, all you great citizens of Crypt Nation? It is Bryce, a little under the weather, but that's okay. I'm joined by the healthy, the oddly healthy pizza mind today. Pete, what's up, bro? It's a new year. I'm definitely a new me. I'm taking all kinds of extra risks and uh, really going for it this year. So... Speaking of going for it, we have on the show today, Dr. Stephen Waterhouse, also known as Seven, who's come to join us today to tell us about how he's going for it in the world of crypto. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. (laughs) I I love the name Seven. It kind of reminds me of from Stranger Things, uh, the character Eleven, right? That was her name? (laughs) Yeah, I either get that or some reference to the Seinfeld episode where there was this question as to why would you call a baby Seven? Um, yeah, I got that a few times, at least in this country. Well, maybe uh, towards the end of the episode, if you feel so inclined, you could let us know why you're named Seven, but we'll save that for later. <laughs> now, on <laughs> the, the really important thing is, you know, what are you building at Orchid um, and why did you decide to build it? Great. Thanks for the question. And uh, it's a pleasure to be on, my, on the podcast, by the way. Uh, thank you. Um, so what we're building at Orchid, uh, fundamentally the, the mission of our company is to build privacy tools. And uh, our first product, uh, which we launched in December, is a um, privacy network. Uh, and that consists of uh, clients for your phones and computers that connect to uh, nodes in the network um, that are run by node providers that are providing bandwidth services. And the simplest way of thinking about this is that um, we're enabling uh, a new kind of virtual private network. Uh, VPNs are tools that people can use to increase their privacy on the internet and also increase their access to information when they're being censored. Okay, so awesome. So it's it's almost like a new kind of internet on top of the internet. So if, and you say you have clients for uh, you know the, the the maybe the iPhone or smartphones and also for desktop. So basically, when somebody logs into Orchid, what they're doing is they're accessing. Uh, is it almost like Tor, like a, a a browser that is just completely hidden from the eyes of any sort of um, you know internet service provider? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, analogy. Um, it's, it's part of a general class of networks called overlay networks, uh, which as they sound overlay on top of existing networks. Um, everything we use today is kind of like overlaying on top of basic architecture. Um, and one of our visions was that just like when you open up your phone and uh, use Twitter or WhatsApp, you don't think about all the different protocols and the stacks and all the decades of work that have gone into that. You just type a message. Uh, we wanted to make uh, privacy and access the same kind of thing. It's just open up an application and press a button and you have uh, assurance that um, you're more private and you have more access. Before we continue, I want to just back up a little bit and put some context around the rest of this conversation. Because you're not some guy who's living in a built-out school bus wearing a tinfoil hat that's concerned that the government's watching. <laughs> you are, in fact, a former managing partner of Pantera Capital, one of the biggest venture capital firms in the crypto and blockchain space. That's really important to mention. So before we continue talking about Orchid and what you're building over there, can you talk a little bit about some of the other hidden gems that you've uncovered at your time at Pantera? <laughs> Thanks. Um... Yeah, it was, uh, it, was very, um, it was a very interesting time. Uh, I got into the crypto space in early 2013, and um, it, was, it was like a lot of things I've done. It was uh, kind of a happy accident. Um, and at the time, I was uh, a managing partner of a completely different fund uh, focused on intellectual property. Uh, my previous company had been fighting patent trolls, and after we took that public, um, a couple of us started a fund focused on uh, intellectual property. And Fortress uh, absorbed that fund, and so then I was at Fortress, uh, wondering what I was doing with my life in a hedge fund, because um, I'm really just a techie entrepreneur kind of guy. And uh, so I started chatting to Pete Brigger, um, head of Fortress um, Group in San Francisco, and. I was kind of going to leave. <laughs> and he said, why don't you come back with a better idea? And I was like, okay. So I came back um, after about a month of talking to a bunch of uh, kind of hacker friends of mine. And um, I said, hey, I'm kind of interested in this Bitcoin thing. And uh, so after a few months, we brought in Dan Moorhead. And a few months later, we spun the, the group out into uh, the newly formed Pantera Capital focusing on crypto and uh, with backing from Fortress and Benchmark and Rivet. And uh, so then spent three years as the CTO and managing partner of that. And we just, it was just a fascinating period where we got to meet and um, connect with a lot of the very early people in the, the space as it grew from um, really just Bitcoin and a bunch of copies of Bitcoin with different names and started building applications and uh, all the exchanges that started during that period. And then as people realized there was more to this than just a currency and that was this thing called the blockchain and that could be used for so many different kinds of applications, uh, that became a really, um, really kind of a shift in how we started thinking about investing and the kind of companies that we focused on. Some of the gems back in that time, uh, I was very fortunate to, to know uh, Naval Ravikant um, from AngelList. And um, we got together in the very early days of Zcash and I got to connect with Zuko over the period of time that he was forming that. Um, and so we were able to come 
very early into that. I think we were the first institutional investor to back uh, Zcash, which was kind of like a crazy idea that we would be backing uh, a private currency. And uh, some other things in that area, we also were very early in Brave. And then I left in 2016 just as the kind of the sort of token idea and the idea of using tokens as a new kind of um, currency um, and a way to build companies um, was just starting. And uh, and then I started investigating other things, which eventually left that, that to Orchid. I love that idea of, you know, you're like, wait, what did we just back? Oh my God, we just backed a private currency that's trying, that has an addressable market of all fiat currencies. It's like, yeah. what is that What is that like from a uh, an investor standpoint, realizing that, you know, you're, you know, we're, we're not really built, I mean, we are building companies, but at the end of the day, a lot of these things are new private currencies. Well, I, I guess kind of, kind of like a lot of the things I, I've done, I do, there's, there's a, there's a thematic aspect to this, which is that um, I, I really strongly believe, and this is how I like to live my life, is that if you don't believe in what you're doing very strongly, and I really believe in the themes of it, then um, then you're just you're just trying to make money, right? Which is there's lots of ways to make money. Um, this is uh, as an investor, I think that it's very important to passionately believe in the causes of what you're doing. Um, and I think those people make the best investors. All the ones I know are very passionately focused on what they do. Um, my personal um, angle on Zcash was that, uh, I guess I'm getting into politics here, but we, we currently have a private anonymous form of currency that's called cash. And every time you go to the ATM and pull some out, no one knows what you've done with that after that. It's, it's, it's private, right? And... Currently, we're in a stage where cash is in, uh, is, in is sort of in, in danger of, of ceasing to exist, and there are even some European countries where they're really trying very hard to get rid of cash, and everything's electronic. And you can argue from a government perspective that that's good because we can track taxes and we can make sure there aren't some bad actors, and we can make sure that there's no money laundering and so on. But it's also um, it is, I believe it's an, an invasion of privacy and um, we're lucky in the United States where, where I, I spend my time uh, now um, to have very strong protections around freedom of speech. Um, and freedom of speech is also freedom to use your cash where you want to and not be tracked around what you do with it. So that was really the kind of fundamental belief system around why we thought Zcash was not only a good thing, but also a, um, a, a very good investment um, as far as what I would do. Separately from a technical angle, and I, I sort of have a very strong technical background, so I, I like to geek out on things. Uh, the zero knowledge proofs and uh, the technology they were bringing was just some incredibly hard science. And this was really the first commercial implementation of that and an attempt to take that to uh, an, a market and, and really put that into the wild and see how it worked. And that was also very successful. So it sounds like a, a big problem that you're concerned with is kind of like 1984, where the world turns into the Big Brother kind of stuff. Is, is that really what prompted you to start Orchid and you know to back you know a private uh, you know a privacy based currency and all that kind of stuff? Or, or what are these things that really keep you up at night that are driving you to create a private world? Is privacy a human right? <laughs> well, theoretically, yes, it is. 
according to the United Nations does. Um, although that there are many companies such as my home country, England, where you might not know, but we, we don't actually have a bill of rights. Um, and uh, we just recently exited Europe, um, which does. Uh, and GCHQ is one of the most advanced surveillance uh, government systems in the world. Um, I don't know if anyone knows this, but there are more uh, closed circuit surveillance cameras uh, in London per person than any other country, any other city in the world. So, yes, you could argue that I grew up with some of these concerns and 984 was definitely something I read very carefully and, and just kind of was very concerned about this as, um, as a young adult. But, and again, when, when I remember when the first cookies came out on that standard, uh, we were all very upset that this idea that we were selling our privacy in return for convenience, but no one minded and everything moved on. The next thing you know, we have social networks and everyone's doing this implicit trade every single day often without knowing what they're doing. Um, so that's been a driving concern of mine for, for many years, but I hadn't really done anything about it. Um, and it wasn't until really spending a lot of time uh, in the crypto space from the early days in 2013 onwards and being exposed to things like Zcash and just the general concept of um, censorship resistant money and uh, what does it mean to be private in the world today anyway. Uh, there was a, it's kind of a funny story. I used to give this um, kind of dinner party conversation, uh, which people would egg me on to give each time, um, where they'd say, you know what, so tell, tell us about being private. What does it mean on the internet today? And I would say, well, what happens if uh, somebody gets elected or something happens in this country or another country where the next thing you know, we've got um, the Patriot Act 2.0, so the next version of the Patriot Act. And part of that is that there should be no more private messaging. And so Signal just gets shut down and Facebook Messenger gets surveillance put into it and, and so on and so forth. And this sounds crazy, but that's actually how things work in some countries like China, where WeChat is heavily censored and surveilled. And we've seen how that plays out in the state of the current uh, coronavirus, where the guy who really first uncovered the virus, the doctor, um, who now just very sadly died, um, was censored quite significantly. And as a result, the, the message didn't get out. He was censored on WeChat. So for me, after leaving Pantera, um, one of my first things I thought of doing was starting a, basically like a, a kind of a fund um, focused on, um, and a think tank focused on trying to rethink security and privacy. And my first thought was this would be something like open AI, but for privacy and security. And I played around with that for a few months uh, while consulting with some other companies. Um, but it wasn't until I got phone ported, I basically got hacked, uh, where my, the carrier um, was convinced to swap my number out. Um, and uh, the, the hackers kind of trolled through my um, different online accounts. And this sense of the idea that none of this was theoretical, in this case, a different kind of invasion of privacy, but it just really brought it home to me that um, it was time to stop thinking about ideas and time to do something. Um, and that led through kind of a twisted form of reasoning of different kinds of ideas to the VPN space. And uh, then I really dug into how the VPN space worked and just realized how, how there was a ton of variance between the very good actors in the VPN space who don't log you and they do what they say and they, um, they're not selling you out 
all the way down to the people who are just really selling you out. And this, the fact that this landscape seems so, um, so kind of messed up, uh, really led us to thinking through how we could do something differently, which then led to Orchid. Very interesting. I remember uh, growing up when they first started putting in cameras, like red light cameras in my neighborhood. And it was such a an invasion of privacy. People would bring out their guns and they would shoot them and break the cameras or they would climb up the street lights and actually tear them down. And eventually the city just got tired of replacing them. And I thought, man, like, why don't more people just do that all the time? I mean, it's our world. These cameras can't fight back. But, you know, well, I think we can all definitely agree that we want less surveillance in that regard. But why do we need privacy from websites we visit and stores we shop at? What are the ultimate dangers that normal browsing nowadays could potentially unveil that the average consumer doesn't really realize? Well, kind of one answer to that question is um, typically people push back on uh, the positions I take and they say, well, it's just aggregated data anyway. And as a former data scientist, I, I sit down and I say, well, that's interesting because any set of aggregated data, once you slice it finely enough, and once you ask the right questions of it, actually uncovers individuals. And so in my case, I'm sort of, you know, somewhat of an unusual person to be living in San Francisco. And if you ask enough questions as like, where did this person go to school? Uh, where are they from? What kind of industry do they work in? Then you'll find me. And so the idea that there's this anonymous aggregated data is really just kind of whitewashing on top of this idea. And even today, in the future, I believe that we'll be using some of the technologies we've been talking about, like zero knowledge proofs, to actually do this kind of proper anonymized data. But the, the thing I'm concerned about is that there was a, there was a choice made in the early days of uh, the internet in terms of how, how would we possibly make this thing commercially viable? Were people going to pay for content? I mean, in your case, you have this podcast and, and like... You know, do you make all your money from subscription? Do you make some money from advertising? Like, what are your choices for actually supporting yourself? And the choice that was made in the early days of uh, especially the, the wired hotbot uh, search engine, uh, they were the first ones to put a, a banner on. And after that, the next thing you knew, there were banners everywhere. And then that kind of worked out, but then we had the dot-com crash and everyone was like, ah, oh, these banners don't really work. And then along came Google with AdWords and more text-based advertising. And very, very targeted advertising. And the next thing you know, we've got Facebook and so on. So this is really the default mode that we're supporting the internet on. And yes, there's e-commerce, but e-commerce is driven by this advertising play. As many people talk about, we're the product. We're the thing that's being sold. It's our data. It's our information that's empowering these networks to be able to make money. And I just think this is an implicit choice that, uh, not saying all advertising is bad. I mean, I, I like to get ads certainly for things I want um, to check out, but um, the idea that this should be the only business model by which anybody can make money, um, and that business model um, is, uh, is predicated on the idea that you shall have no privacy just seems really wrong. So I guess that's some philosophical aspects of how I think about this. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and when, whenever that ad stuff and the intelligence doesn't work, it's very head-scratching. For instance, I was on Facebook today, and I got an ad from Wish that was selling me adult plastic underwear. 
And the picture in the ad looked like some woman who had stepped through a shower cap. And I am damn sure no matter how tired I was, I did not ever search for something even remotely related to that. Well, I mean, a, a fun game to play sometimes is to, is to start up on a new computer without any information on you and start looking for things that are completely out of your profile and then start to see what kind of ads you get. You can, you can actually mess with these things. Uh, one, one of the tricks some people have talked about recently is um, they call it, I think it's like, um, it's basically the idea of partitioning your browsing so you use different browsers to do different things. So you might use one for work, you might use Chrome for work, you might use Safari for certain kinds of personal things, and you might use Mozilla for something else. And by doing this, um, and you might be able to make sure that the, the cookie files on each one, which are separate, are not uh, inter interacting with one another. And then you actually have different browsing experiences and histories and profiles across, uh, across the systems. As long as you use a VPN, by the way, <laughs> because otherwise it's tied to your IP address. Do you have a friend who's interested in getting into cryptocurrency, but they don't know where to start building their portfolio? Well, we have the answer. It's called CopyTrader by eToro. With CopyTrader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders, just like myself or Bryce or Kevin, at the exact price point and in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply just sign up and copy our trades. Any profits that we make, you do too. Proportional to your investment, of course. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com slash crypto101. Thank you. So what type, of, what type of data is being collected from us and what are people doing with it? Oof, well... This is really so much information out there on you. Um, it, it's, it's really, if you start to break down the different uh, categories, um, obviously your browsing information, the kinds of things you're looking at, the kind of ads you're clicking on, the kind of things you bought, where you are, your purchase history from credit card companies, your, uh, your health information, what kind of prescriptions you're doing. I mean, the, the list is, is enormous and there are companies out there that are aggregating and concentrating this information and then selling it, selling you to other people who want to sell you things. Now, this all sounds like, what's the big deal? But the, the concern here is, is that um, this system of, um, of gathering data and effectively... You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow. <laughs> I could really use Current. <laughs> I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. 
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Surveilling you, with your permission, by the way, you, you've all bought into this either explicitly or implicitly, is currently just being used for targeting data and so on. But as we've seen in, for example, the previous elections, this can also be used to influence you. And this profile on you can be used to then target information to you in the form of propaganda. Propaganda is just a form of advertising. It's been used for centuries. But now we're starting to realize the power of it in the new digital domain. Um, and in addition, once you combine um, this extremely uh, targeted um, advertising and this extremely detailed surveillance with states um, in the context of countries that may have different kinds of government and different kinds of freedom for people, for example, and, and as we're talking about the case of China, you now have buying information, behavioral information, political leanings information, et cetera, combined with state control. And I think we can all see the potential dangers of that. And it's, it's not 984, it's like a really sophisticated 984 with capitalism on steroids that suddenly like gets mixed together. And I think this is the real danger is, is that we say, oh, there's no big deal. What's Seven talking about? Like our country's fine, we've got freedom of speech. But that's just not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed that you will always have this kind of system. It's not guaranteed that we won't have a more oppressive government in the future, um, based on usually based on something that really bad that happens, either a natural disaster or a, or an attack of some form. Um, and I think if we just go back and look at um, to the Second World War and don't even look to Europe and Germany, just look to the treatment of people even inside. For example, German uh, origin people in, in the UK or Japanese in the US, the treatment of people by a government that um, just decides that these people are not the right people or want to be oppressed in some way, it, it doesn't take much to jump to these conclusions as to what could happen with just incredible surveillance and control. So those are things that I, I think about as to what kind of systems are we really building. Truly brilliant and, and really, really well articulated. And it really sounds like ORCID is for the masses. It's a tool that anybody could use to enhance um, not only their individual life, but really society at large. Um, and you know, we've, we've really seen a demonstration of what a fully private open internet could be with some things like you know, Onion Sites or 4chan or all those different pseudonymous or anonymous uh, you know, forums. It attracts some really smart people um, and, and very well, you know, well spoken and all that kind of stuff. But you know, uh, imagine ten years in the future, everybody's running on a private, open, decentralized uh, internet network. What does that future look like? Best case scenario, everybody adopts Orkin. That'd be nice. Um, and obviously, we're obviously we're <laughs> focused on that. Um, I think so. One thing to sort of to sort of as a, as a nuance to explain here is that. Um, a couple of couple of nuances with Orchid. Um, one is, is that from a from a go to market perspective, we're not naive enough to assume that uh, you know I've done a, a series of startups in my 
um, especially my co-founder Jay Freeman, who's who's very successful in the jailbreaking and steel world. Um, we're we're very aware of the challenges of building a global consumer brand and also the expense of doing that. And we'd be extremely excited if everyone was using our clients. But the real power of Orchid is, is that it's not just a client, it's also a library and a sort of protocol. So our go-to-market plan is not just to give people like yourself who are the, the crypto savvy a way to use this with Orchid, uh, OXT and uh, all the currencies we provide, but um, we're also looking to how to make that much more accessible to anyone to use through different kinds of rails. And in addition, um, provide it as a library so anyone can just plug that in um, to any application. And then it's not a question of, oh, let me just make sure I start Orchid before I do this. You just load up the application and it's just running in the background and you've got that access. So that's just kind of a trying to explain the go-to-market. But to specifically answer your question, Yes, you're right. There are uh, there are always positives and negatives around any technology. Um, I think just to kind of go back to the example I gave earlier, in the case of what happened recently, what it is happening with the coronavirus and the extreme censorship that was put on that um, really very significant public health issue for first, firstly China and then the world at large, we see the dangers of censorship happening on information that kind of wants to be free, I guess there's no way of putting it. And whilst there are already abuses um, and bad people who are going to use, whether it's private money or private networks to uh, to do things that I certainly wouldn't like them to do, there are also just enormous human rights issues. And I, I guess I, I think of this world and I say, what if we continue down this path of increasing surveillance and control and we get to a point where we just can't go back like what is the point of no return what if there is no way to um, communicate in the case where we actually need to form some kind of response to a government and system that has locked us into a situation where we don't we don't have an option i think I don't know, go watch Black Mirror and a few episodes there in terms of what the worst case scenario <laughs> could be there. Um, and there's a talk I've given a, f- a few times in the early days of Orchid, and uh, we call it the scary talk. Um, and it's uh, here, the Oslo Freedom Forum was the first place I, I gave it. And, and those guys, the Human Rights Foundation, are doing incredible work with, with real activists and real people who are um, just actually in really in danger, like, like physical danger. Um, and they train people, uh, Alex Gladstein is one of the guys who's, who's heading that up, and they do workshops where they teach people how to use Signal, they teach people how to use VPNs, and it's not some theoretical thing where you're concerned about Amazon or Facebook you know, having too much data on you. It's like these guys are in Bolivia or they're in Hong Kong, and it's sometimes life or death for them as to whether or not they're able to communicate privately. So those are the people we really focus on as the kind of most extreme use case for what we're thinking about. After that, because clearly that's that's an important thing, but it's from a commercial standpoint, it's a kind of a small market. We've noticed that there's many different use cases for this category of tools. And one of the most um, uh, sort of amusing ones is we've all heard of the Great Firewall of China, right? It's like this this thing that China has and stops you from accessing probably about 70% of the known internet. But there's also the great firewall of the high school, which not many people have thought about unless you're in high school. What this is, is that if you're connected to the Wi-Fi on high school, 
they stop you from accessing Instagram and Snapchat and anything else that you want to do that's fun. And probably for good reason, because, you know, maybe you should be studying, but high school kids don't like this. And so one of the fastest growing markets for VPNs right now is um, amongst high school students in the so-called free world where they just want to have fun. And our design and where we've thought about this is to try to make ORCID something that has the flexibility to be used by activists, but also be used by people who want to have fun and just want to access something that's you know, really benign like Snapchat and, uh, and you know, Big Brother's not allowed to do it. <laughs> Power to the freaking people. I love it. Um, so, you know, there, there's been a couple crypto projects in the past. I, I think that might have been similar to Orchid that have fallen on their face, ran out of funding, not gotten adopted, et cetera, for lack of a better word, you know, failed. Um, what makes you think that Orchid will, uh, or, or not what makes you think, but like, what can you learn from the failures, I should say, of these past crypto projects? That's a good question. I think in general, one of the things I'm most excited about with, and I was really excited when I, after I left time at Pantera, started thinking about this general idea of using, using tokens. I, I don't really like the word anymore because it reminds me of the ICO phase, but let's just call them tokens for now. But using tokens as a way to build companies was the idea that you could fund things that were really just experiments. Um, and with any experiment as a scientist, you know that sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if you go back to say something like Guitar, which Brian McCullough really just built in his basement with no money and he just scratched it together and uh, it ended up being a very significant uh, impact on, on the internet. I mean, it's responsible for like quite a significant proportion of traffic in many cases still. But if we'd had this funding mechanism and this approach to um, how to incentivize that kind of network, um, and it, you I guess kind of now we're trying and firing if that's, that's sort of happening, but um, it might have been a very different story. It might have been easier for him to do, and maybe there would be lots of different versions of it that could have iterated and experimented in different ways. And I think that's an exciting thing. And we are some, certainly also, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, people who've thought of these things before. One of the people that uh, really was the first to point out this idea of could you use a cryptocurrency to provide incentivize uh, bandwidth networks, which is what we are, was Naval Ravikant. I think there's a, a tweet back in uh, 2014 or something. He points out that maybe we could buy these things and have something which actually did this in this way. Uh, I didn't come across this till later, but there was certainly a, a number of um, attempts at this um, over the last sort of three years. I think that one of the differentiations I would make about our approach and other approaches we've seen in the past is our approach to payments. Um, uh, so the one approach you can think about doing this is that if you're the, if you're the node that's providing the bandwidth, let's say it's, it's just one node, for example, although we can string multiple nodes together and so on um, to provide more privacy, then if you're providing the bandwidth, how do I know, when, when do you charge me, first of all? Is it every day? Is it every second? Is it every month? And also, how do I know whether or not you've actually provided me with the bandwidth that you said you were going to do, or are you just kind of scanning me out of it and giving me a little dribble? And this kind of question, and uh, it's it's really a kind of a, a thinking process that we have inside the company. We we think a lot about adversarial attack vectors, about just very paranoid approaches to how do we think through all the ways that 
the system could be attacked, not just from a state actor, but also from um, somebody who's just trying to economically attack you. And that's gone, that kind of thinking has gone into the design process and into the into the code and the protocols of Orchid and has really uh, really led to sort of what we think is some very interesting approaches. Many people were shocked and heard about Orchid for the first time when they saw you guys get listed on Coinbase. They're saying, what is this token? I've never even seen it on CoinMarketCap before, but now here it is on Coinbase. What's the story behind that coveted achievement? Uh, well, I think one of the things that certainly uh, at that time when um, Coinbase uh, decided to list us, um, I think the thinking process around that was that Coinbase, for all of the for all the criticisms that might be leveled at them for being you know, the new bank and so on, at its core, it's founded by people and it has many amazing people in it who are just really motivated by the idea of decentralization and, and the, the, the principles. And the, the thing I was talking about earlier about what is your real mission? And uh, with Orchid, independent of what we're doing around privacy and all those kind of motivations I talked about, we're really a, a, in, in its core an application. It's like an app, application network. It's a it's a um, something that people can use and uh, get some kind of service out of. I'm also very inspired by the layer one designs and many of the things that are coming out. And um, but I do believe that we're now starting to enter a phase where people are building and starting to release systems which go beyond just protocols and actually provide um, applications and uh, useful services. And I think we're going to see that soon with something like Filecoin, which is just seen to, to come out also, uh, which is focused on storage. So I think that's one of the real reasons why they were excited to provide support for us. We were also uh, very interestingly, very excited that Uniswap uh, listed us at a similar time, actually before Coinbase. And one of the things that we were really excited about there was that Uniswap enables you to get access to the Orbit network uh, without having to go through the Coinbase and be a registered uh, person on there. And in many cases, um, people who are using Orbit today are actually going through Uniswap. And from we don't know where they're from, obviously, because we just don't know information with all the designs of the network. We don't know where you're accessing Orbit from. But we assume it's outside of the US and in other countries where, uh, as I've sort of replied, the usefulness of Orchid is, is, is rapidly, is much larger in places like Indonesia, where 43% of people use a VPN on a regular basis. So that's also very exciting to us that not only a, a large, well-respected uh, company like Coinbase, but other people in these more decentralized systems were um, supporting our vision. Let's continue down that path talking about decentralized systems. What advancements in decentralization are you watching out for this year? What advancements are you seeing coming down the pipeline? You mentioned Uniswap. That's uh, one of the big ones. What else are you seeing coming up? Um, I think think that the DeFi space is is fascinating. Um, And um, I'm always... So excited when I get surprised, and it's, it's, it's you know like you have visions about how the space is going to go. But when DeFi emerged, uh, really in the last year or so, I was just really excited to see how we now had a use case, a really interesting use case that that went beyond um, funding companies or went beyond um, Bitcoin's use case of storing wealth and, and a censorship resistant mechanism. 
So I think that's really exciting. I think as we push beyond that, some of the kind of decentralized derivatives plays that are coming along are also um, very exciting there. And the kind of on the, on the core protocol levels, um, like the layer one designs, I think that's what Polkadot is doing, um, really focusing on interoperability is going to be um, very interesting to see how that plays out. And then again, like I referenced before, I think more of these uh, applications um, including the protocols, but also including ways for people to use these things is really going to open the space up and, and get more developers and, and then more users uh, really using decentralized technologies and using them in a way that they don't really know that it's decentralized at the back end necessarily, but it provides, it provides them with some improved experience that's beneficial to them. Perfect. Yeah. Just on that point that you just brought up about, you know, people using crypto and blockchain without really knowing it. Uh, I saw uh, the Apple app store tweeted out the other day about this new project or whatever. And I click on this project. I'm like, oh my God, that's literally an Ethereum app. Uh, it's called Audius. So that was really cool. Like you log in and you don't even know you're interacting on a blockchain network. So now there's a whole class of people, you know, millions and millions of people that are going to be using crypto and not really even understanding that they're they're using it. So I love that. That gets me super excited too. And, and before we let you go, we got a couple closing questions that we like to ask every single guest that comes on the show. You know, Seven, out of all the amazing people that you've come into contact with in the crypto space, who has really made a lasting impression? And, and can you tell us a story about, about that impression? Oof, such an interesting question. Um, there's been so many people uh, that have had an impact on me. I think, not to kind of fanboy here, but because um, I was also a friend, is uh, I think Naval Ravikant has really um, just inspired me consistently because, as I mentioned before, we, we worked together on Zcash back when it was very nascent stages. Uh, he's also a, an early investor in Orchid. And just the combination of his insight and vision and then also his... I guess just kind of integrity and the way he thinks about the world and his philosophy on life. And, you know, I know, he, I know there's even like a, an Aval bot that retweets his old saying and yes. so on, but um, that's certainly um, someone that's, he's, he's definitely kind of behind the scenes of a lot of very influential things uh, that I believe have happened, but also um, just really kind of a, kind of, kind of a little bit of a conscience to the space in the sense of really pushing you know, kind of why are we doing this and pointing out uh, the kind of pitfalls and also the benefits of these things and consistently keeping the same spirit of, of what this is. He's not just, he's not just in there for the money. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a, it's like a real kind of ethical play as to how you think about the space. So I'd say that would be really one of my uh, heroes in the space. If this was the first podcast someone getting into the space had listened to, what would you want them to know? Uh, hold on to your keys. Um, <laughs> so true. <laughs> Yeah, uh, having been having been phone ported myself, and this really is a public service announcement. Having been phone ported myself and uh, was lucky enough to not actually have crypto exposed. Um, and I'm, for all you phone porters out there, I, I have much better security now than I did then. I'd say that uh, you really got to take responsibility. And one of the the real spirits behind decentralization is taking control and. If you want control of your privacy, if you want control of your money, if you want control of your life, you've got to step up and grow up and take responsibility. And it is more complicated than just using a password. 
it is more complicated than just using two-factor authentication on your phone, which you should be using Authenticator and other tools. Um, so I'd say before you start really getting deep and holding a bunch of crypto, just take care of your security, take care of your own stuff. Um, that's one thing. And then on, on a less scary note, <laughs> I'd say that the temptation when most people get into this space is they just go down a rabbit hole so hard and they start thinking about decentralizing all the things. Yeah, I, I'd like to decentralize all the things too, but maybe we'll get there. Or maybe there's things that make a lot of sense to, to do now and think like an investor, right? Like there's things that are going to work today and there's things that are going to be really hard to do, like uh, decentralizing governments. There's a ton of regulations about that and might take a really long time. So it's important to think about what can you do in the short term while maintaining your long-term vision. Um, I guess that's some, some thoughts as to how to get into the space. Yeah, love it. And I know there's a lot of big lawsuits going on right now against uh, AT&T. Was, was that who uh, who you, your provider was? <laughs> I'd rather not say. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but it, it wasn't them. Um, they, what I would say is that having been in touch with many people, because this was many years ago, and I, I knew people who were in the same situation, and we all were talking about what could we do, I know that there really isn't a good standard carrier to use. They all have very poor security on the back end. In the case of the one that, that, that I was involved with, uh, I was able to break through the own, my own controls that I'd set up by saying I'd forgotten something. And they're like, oh, no big deal. And then at the end of it, I said, can I talk to your security person? And I said, okay, what's up? And I chatted to him and he's like, oh yeah, this is just a, like a little note in your file. There's no real security there. It's just like a little tagline there. And so, you know, you and I know more about how something like Coinbase or other places really KYC you and do all these crazy controls to let you in or not. And what happens when you forget something is like this month long process of recovery that just doesn't exist in cell phone systems. And so you should just assume that your phone number is at risk all the time and never use only your phone number or never just use your phone number to secure things. It should be something else. All the way through to using um, hardware keys like YubiKeys and so on. That's really a much, much better approach. And just always think about what's the worst case scenario? How would you recover your systems if you lost something? Does, is there a backup somewhere of your, of your code words? What happens if you lose that? Just, just think through all the paranoid things like we think through all day when we're designing the software as to how you actually protect yourself. 100% guys, not your keys, not your coins. You are not invisible and you are not invincible. Um, so everybody, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Steven, AKA seven Waterhouse uh, from Orchid. Sir, thank you so much for joining us today on Crypto 101. Thank you very much, it was a pleasure. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.